And we are now going to read a passage that um, will help us enter into worship and continue to reflect on these, on these promises um, that God will save us. So I'm going to read from Psalm 80, um, and then you can join in for the refrain. Let's actually all stand for this. So you'll see on the slide when it's your part. And um, during that refrain, we'll ask God to restore us, let his face shine upon us so that we may be saved. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Amen. Um, and I'd love for you to pray with me now. Um, Lord God, we do come to you this morning, a church family here to worship together. Um, we do adore your son um, and thank you for his coming into the world. Um, God, we just want to spend a little time this morning um, thanking you. Um, there are many things going on in our minds and hearts, um, and even though those won't go away, we do want to give you thanks um, for the many ways that we, that we see you at work. And we know that as we pray, even though I lead us aloud, you hear each silent prayer or cry of the heart in this room. Um, Lord, we thank you um, first for our young people seeking to love um, their neighbor and participate in your work in Mexico. And we pray for your provision for their trip in the spring um, and that we as their church family would support them in every way that we can. We thank you for our amazing volunteer team that we have at Kids Club this year and the enthusiastic group of kids. Um, we thank you for questions like we got last week. Is the Bible true? Thank you for the prison ministry, the faithful volunteers who go each week, um, and for the possibility of a baptism there. And we thank you for the discovery dinners, which then led to a discovery Bible study. Um, God, and we entrust our friends to you who are learning about who you are. We thank you for those who are new to our body. Um, God, you bless us so richly with um, the perspectives and attitudes of these brothers and sisters. Um, and we, those of us who have been here longer recognize that we have so much to learn from them. Thank you that we are a church family with young and old and everything in between. Um, though there are challenges that come from having different generations and perspectives and ways of doing things represented, um, God, isn't this just how you mean for us to participate together? One body, many parts, and each part so valuable. 
We thank you for some of the ways that we see you at work within our our body and local community, Um, but we also see you at work more specifically in our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. Um, And so we want to just spend a little time each individually praying right now, knowing that you hear each and every one of our prayers. And so we lift those up to you now. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Um, God, we lift up um, just the rest of this morning to you as we have a chance to give, um, as we listen to Bernard's sermon. We're ready to receive your word, and we're here to serve and care for one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we entrust the morning to you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. We're going to read our today's scripture text um, now, which is going to prepare us um, both for the choir song, um, The World Awaits Your Coming, um, as well as for Bernard's sermon focused on Zechariah's um, psalm of praise. So you can hear these words from Isaiah now. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully, him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Well, thank you, choir, for that. That was lovely, and thank you, Eric. Lovely to have you directing them. Well, I want to begin with uh, the collect for today from the uh, Book of Common Prayer. Uh, Today, the second Sunday of Advent, uh, the second Sunday of the church year. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. 
Uh, that's one of my favorite prayers from uh, the prayer book. And uh, back in the 16th century, Archbishop Cranmer, who uh, put the prayer book together, assigned it to the second Sunday of Advent, the second Sunday of the church year. And he put it there in order to inspire us for the entire year, that as we encounter the scriptures throughout the year, we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. So God has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this seems a particularly appropriate reminder at Advent, because this is a season when we look back to God's promises in the Old Testament, and we look ahead in anticipation to the fulfillment of these promises in the New Testament. Some already fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus, and some yet to be fulfilled in His return. So, indeed, we are dealing with promise and fulfillment, but not all has yet been fulfilled. And so at Advent, we usually think of it as being, we think about the Advent of our Lord. We also think of the second Advent of our Lord, His return in glory. So at this season, uh, perhaps more than any other, we are thinking of how the two halves of the Bible go together, all of which God has uh, inspired for our learning. And hearing these scriptures should instill in us both patience and comfort as we hold fast to our blessed hope. Blessed hope that we already have because of the first advent of Jesus. And blessed hope that we hold on to awaiting its full realization in the second advent of Jesus. So we're in the season of Advent. And this year for our Advent series, we are looking at the Lucan Canticles. These four songs that punctuate uh, Luke's infancy narrative. Last week we looked at Mary's Magnificat, and today we will look at Zechariah's Benedictus. Now, as Brian uh, showed a little bit last week, Luke has very skillfully composed his infancy narrative. There's uh, not one infancy narrative, but two. They're interwoven together. He interleaves the accounts of John the Baptist and of Jesus. So we have two annunciations, two births, two circumcisions, two namings, two growths. He begins with the angel Gabriel's annunciation, first to Zechariah that his barren wife will conceive and bear a son, and then to the Virgin Mary that she will conceive and bear a son. And then later we have the birth of John followed by the birth of Jesus. And in between the annunciation and the births, the two expectant mothers come together as Mary hurries from Nazareth to visit Elizabeth, her relative in the hill country of Judah. Now, last week, Brian focused on the first half of the Jesus side of the narrative, the Annunciation and Conception, and today we focus on the entire John side of the narrative, both his Annunciation and his birth. And at the beginning, we find that Zechariah was a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from a priestly family. And they're described as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So these were faithful Jews. They are model Jews. But despite their devout faithfulness, they had no child, for Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were old. And in that society, this would have been cause for great shame, great reproach and embarrassment. 
Now, Zechariah, as a priest, twice a year, he would go up to Jerusalem to the temple to serve on duty for a week. And uh, one day he was chosen to enter the temple to burn incense on the golden altar that stood in the holy place immediately in front of the veil beyond which lay the Holy of Holies. This was a once-in-a-lifetime event. He was chosen by lot, and you only ever got to do this once, and many priests never got this opportunity. Now, the incense that he offered up uh, on that altar represented the inside, represented the prayers of the people that were being offered up outside. And this was true of the morning time of prayer and the evening time of prayer. And what were they praying? Well, perhaps they were praying the words of our call to worship from Psalm 80 with its refrain that we all said together, Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. That comes three times in that psalm. And perhaps you noticed the escalating uh, address, O God, O God of hosts, O Lord God of hosts, as the petition gets more and more intense, let your face shine that we may be saved. Perhaps they were praying the words of our scripture reading from Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to make your name known to your adversaries. Uh, behold, you are angry, for we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Shall we be saved from our sins? The barrenness of Zechariah and Elizabeth mirrored the barrenness of the people, subject to their adversaries, the Romans, the occupying Romans. But lo, the angel Gabriel standing beside the altar as Zechariah is offering up the incense and the people are praying, and he brings surprising news. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He will go before the Lord to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Unsurprisingly, Zechariah asks, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. This seems an obstacle that cannot be overcome, an impossibility. But Gabriel took these words as unbelief. Why so? Because there was precedent for this. Precedent in the birth of Isaac to aged Abram and barren Sarah back in Genesis. So how would Zechariah know in his unbelief? By being struck dumb until the promise be fulfilled. Finally, he emerged from the temple to the wandering, waiting people. And on this, the greatest day of his life, the most significant day of his life, he had been struck speechless. At the end of the week of duty, he went home, and Elizabeth indeed conceived and for five months, she kept herself hidden at home. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, Gabriel appeared again, this time to a young virgin in Nazareth, who was betrothed but not yet married. And she too would conceive and bear a son, to be called Jesus. Again, we're told the name. How so, she asked. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so her womb became the container of the uncontainable God. God contracted to a span. Her womb hosted God. 
And Gabriel had more surprising news. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so Mary hurried to the home of Elizabeth in the hill country of Judah, where she stayed three months. And as Brian described last week, that was quite a considerable journey for a young woman to make. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, as she entered the house, Elizabeth's baby leapt in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and said, Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So we have hospitality all around. The Lord was hosted in Mary's womb, who's now hosted in Elizabeth's house where she hosted in her womb the one who would prepare the way. The baby in her womb recognized the presence of the one whose way he would prepare. And Mary responded with the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. Brian took us through this last week. And then for three months, these two expectant mothers were together, one old, one very young. And then Mary returned home shortly before Elizabeth's due date. Elizabeth gave birth to a son, to the great surprise and delight of her neighbors who rejoiced with her. It seemed she'd kept herself hidden for the entire nine months. And uh, on the eighth day, um, that's the brief summary of the birth, not much attention paid to it. More attention is paid to what happened on the eighth day. According to the Lord's commandment to Abraham long ago, it was time to circumcise the baby boy, which was a sign of his membership in God's covenant people. And they, they being all the neighbors, the relatives, the people around about, had already decided what his name should be. They were already calling him Zechariah after his father. No, said Elizabeth most emphatically, he shall be called John. And they objected that there was no precedent for such a name in the family. Nobody had ever been called that before in their family. And now at last, Zechariah enters the picture. He's been absent from the narrative for nine months, unable to say a word. And by means of a writing tablet, he backs up Elizabeth. His name is John. John, Yohanan, the Lord is gracious. Lord indeed has been gracious. And thereby assigning the name, Zechariah fulfills Gabriel's word back at the beginning of the chapter. And then immediately, one of Luke's favorite words, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, with God being the implied actor who does the opening. At last he could speak. And what he speaks is he blessed God And news spread far and wide, and everyone was asking, what then will this child be? Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, who is so active throughout this infancy narrative. And spirit-empowered, he prophesied. That is, he proclaimed God's word. So he gave the divine perspective on what was happening, including the question, what then will this child be? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. In Latin, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. Since the the Western Church has recited and sung this in Latin for over 1,500 years, it is known by its opening word in Latin, Benedictus, blessed. 
And since this is one of the Lucan canticles, we should hear it sung. So, just as we heard the Magnificat sung last week, we're going to hear the Benedictus sung this week. Um, Scott Kinder accompanied by uh, Genevieve on piano and uh, Lucinda as well. Great. Um, we'll sing Michael Perry's uh, hymn based on Zachariah's song. Uh, so Michael Perry was an Anglican minister uh, in England. Um, he wrote this about 50 years ago. So Zachariah's song, the Benedictus. Scott and Genevieve and Lucinda, that lovely uh, rendition of the Benedictus. So, Zechariah's song, the Benedictus. Uh, it is in two stanzas. Uh, the first stanza, verses 68 through 75, is one very, very long sentence, which actually the ESV manages to preserve. Uh, and this first stanza focuses on what God is doing. Now, remember, this is a prophecy. Zechariah is prophesying after the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. 
So he is giving us basically God's perspective on what is going on in the birth of this um, young boy, John. And first, Zechariah proclaims why God is to be praised. Verses 68 through 70. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from his old. So Zechariah says that God has done three things for which he is praiseworthy. He has visited, he has redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. So first, he has visited his people. Now earlier, we had what we call the visitation scene, when Mary hurried from Nazareth to visit her relative Elizabeth and stayed there for three months. And that's a beautiful scene, but divine visitation is a rather different concept and is a much richer concept. So Mary and Elizabeth were equals, they were relatives, they were both human beings, but in a divine visitation, there is an imbalance. There's a superior and there's an inferior. And the superior interacts with those who are under his authority in order to arrange or put things right. Now, I have a very uh, vivid uh, experience that helps me understand how a visitation works. Um, it's not a divine visitation, but it was certainly fit the, the uh, this category of visitation. Uh, so 40 years ago, I worked in uh, Geneva at CERN, the uh, particle accelerator there, um, and I lived in France, but I, very close to the border. The, the, the lab uh, spans the Swiss-French border, and I crossed the border many times a day, uh, sometimes in a CERN vehicle, very often on my bicycle. And uh, one day I got embroiled in a dispute with the French customs authorities, and this occupied two full days, and then into the morning of the third day, I again showed up at the customs post there on the French side of the border, and it was overrun with uh, customs officials all in their smart uniforms. And I wondered, what is going on here? And then in the middle, uh, and I'm in the hallway, the entrance hallway of the customs post, there was a suit. Ah, somebody is visiting from the head office. And um, the chief customs official was beginning to explain to the suit why he felt that I was in error and why I had done something wrong. And um, before very long, the suit just uh, interceded and said, no, what he did was completely correct. He's required to do that. And my adversary, who was the uh, chief customs official, and really all of them, uh, almost just shriveled up when uh, this person from head office vindicated me and um, overcame my adversaries. And so uh, that was a visitation that worked out to my great benefit, visitation from the head office. So uh, every time I encounter the word visit, um, God visiting in scripture, that's where my mind goes to think of that, uh, even 40 years later. So a divine visitation, God has come from head office, has come down to earth, um, and he's come to put things right. Um, when God visits, he intervenes to vindicate those who are in the right and to punish those who are in the wrong. 
As we heard in our scripture reading, Isaiah cried out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And now God has come down to his people. He has visited them. And the next verb clarifies what he has done. He has accomplished redemption for his people, delivering them from their enemies into safety. He has set them free. And then the third verb further clarifies, specifying the agent. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, a horn is a potent image of power. Think of a bull's horn. And here, it's power that accomplishes salvation. And the powerful agent that rises from the line of David. This is in accordance, we read, with God's promises through his prophets from long ago. This can be none other than the long-awaited Davidic Messiah. Is this season of Advent, of waiting, almost over? Has God indeed sent his long-awaited Messiah into the line of David? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Is her exile almost over? Next, Zechariah describes the purpose of this divine visitation through the agency of the Davidic Messiah. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Yes, that we should be saved from the Romans, our wicked oppressors. Just as long ago we were saved from the Egyptians who held us in harsh servitude. Just as we remember every year in Passover. Just as we were saved from the Greek Syrians more recently who attempted cultural genocide to wipe out all Jewishness. As we remember each year in Hanukkah as Jews worldwide are doing right now. For today is the third day of Hanukkah. Save from the hand of all who hate us, just as Israel is seeking to do with Hamas as it pounds Gaza. So it's a very sober Hanukkah that uh, is being celebrated in Israel and by Jews elsewhere. So it's easy to read this verse as militaristic language of national redemption. We want our enemies to be pounded and to be hammered and God um, to devastate them, all those who hate us, so that we might be saved. Next we have the basis for God's action in verses 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So the basis for this threefold action of God to come down and save is God's faithfulness to his promises. God will do what he said. He shows mercy by remembering his covenant. God's intervention does not depend on the faithfulness of his people. Indeed, his people have generally been faithless. It depends on his own faithfulness. And this is God's righteousness, that he will do what he said. He will, he's made promises, and he will fulfill those promises. Long ago, he made a promise to Abraham, which he swore with an oath. We get that in Genesis 12, repeated several times, and finally in Genesis 22, uh, right after the uh, offering up of Isaac, that he would have a son who would grow into a mighty people, who would be a people for God. And then the first stanza climaxes with the purpose of God's visitation. Verses 74 and 75. 
to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So God saves his people so that they might serve him. This is why God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. As Moses repeatedly confronted Pharaoh in God's name, let my people go that they may worship me. Now, in the immediate context, that meant that they could be uh, set free from Egypt, released from Egypt, in order to go to, out into the Sinai wilderness, there to worship the Lord. But serving the Lord is a full-time occupation. Israel worshipped God in the cult, in all that was uh, associated with the, the tabernacle and later with the temple, the sacrifices and the offerings uh, and all of that. The things that we see Zechariah doing, the twice a year as you'd go up to the temple for his priestly duty. But Israel also served the Lord by keeping his commandments, by living in holiness and righteousness as described here. God gave Israel the Torah, the instructions on how to live. He gave them the gift of order, how to live a well-ordered life, how to live a life that was well-pleasing to God. So in both the cultic worship and in the, the ordered life of everyday life, they served God. And this is what a repetition of what Adam was called to do in the garden. When God placed him in the garden to, I would translate the verbs there, Genesis 2.15, as to worship and to keep. And he's given a single commandment to keep. There's a morality to his worship of God, which is keeping God's word. So ethics is important in our service to God. And the worship is we live an entire life that is oriented onto God. So this is the purpose for God's promise to Abraham, was to call out for himself a people that were oriented onto him and would live in the world in a way that showed that they were oriented onto God. An ethical life of walking in God's ways. So in this first stanza, God liberates his people so that we might serve him, whose service is perfect freedom. When we live life this way, we are truly free as human beings, living life the way that God has ordained for us to live. So that's the first stanza, that single long sentence. In the second stanza, verses 76 to 79, Zechariah now looks at his infant son, um, turns his gaze on him, and he describes what John's role will be. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You will be called the prophet of the Most High. The role of the prophet was to be the spokesperson, the mouthpiece of God. So, when Zechariah is prophesying this entire uh, Benedictus song, he is acting as the mouthpiece of God. John the Baptist, John is going to act as a mouthpiece for the Most High. And he will play this role of going before the Lord to prepare his ways. And thereby, he will fulfill uh, the promise given in Malachi 3, verse 1, 
that God will send Elijah ahead of the Lord to prepare his ways. He also fulfills uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3, of preparing the way for the Lord so that he can come and announce the great good news, the good news of liberation. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. So here again, we have salvation to announce that salvation is coming. And what is this salvation? It's not necessarily deliverance from the enemies, deliverance from those who hate them. It is in the forgiveness of their sins. See, that's what people really need, is forgiveness of their sins. Again, as we heard back in Isaiah 64, the people there are lamenting. They've been in their sins for a long, long time. Can they be saved from out of their sins? And ultimately, the sacrifices were offered up in the temple could not save from deliberate sins. What we all need is to be saved from our, un our sins that we might deem unforgivable. But this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is scandalous because it seems to let us off free. But forgiveness is very necessary if we were to live wholesome lives of peace. So this is what John the Baptist is going to announce, is the forgiveness of sins. And then again, just as in the first stanza, Zechariah gives us God's motivation and the purpose for this. Verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Why does God do this? Why does he offer the forgiveness of sins? Because of his tender mercy, literally his bowels of compassion or his gut formed from personifying God as a human being. It's what comes from deep, deep down inside him. Uh, that is full of mercy and compassion for his people. God is a merciful and compassionate God. This is how he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, a God compassionate and merciful. Do we really believe that that is what God is? I don't think that fits most people's picture of God. But on Mount Sinai, he revealed this to Moses. This is fundamental to his character. That he is El Rachum Vachanun, the God compassionate and gracious from the very heart of his being. And because of this compassionate mercy, this deep, deep compassion inside him, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, it's a little difficult to translate this. The word sunrise is literally the rising, the anatole, um, which we, um, similar to our word for Anatolia, uh, the land that is today Turkey, is the land of the rising sun. And this rising can refer either to the rising of a star or the rising of the sun at the beginning of the day or the rising of a shoot. And both the rising of a shoot and the rising of a, the sun or the star are used as messianic symbols in the Old Testament. Here, with the reference to darkness, it's referring to the fact that dawn is coming. Into this world of darkness, God is bringing this one that rises up, that he raises up. Just as he raised up 
the horn of salvation in the line of David, so now he is raising up one who will be light into this world of darkness. And he has two purposes, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So those who dwell in darkness, the light has shone in the Davidic Messiah. So John, in prophesying this remarkable song, has given us a pretty comprehensive biblical theology. He has taken the covenant of Abraham, he has taken the exodus from Egypt, he has taken the Davidic covenant, and he has taken the promises of a Messiah that's going to come and wrapped them all up in this one song and realized that this is being fulfilled in John the Baptist, who's eight days old, and in the as yet unborn Jesus, um, whom he and his wife Elizabeth have just hosted in their house for three months. And all of these come together, um, ultimately, in the birth of Jesus. And we'll be hear a bit more about this next week when we turn to the birth of Jesus for the last two songs. The next uh, 30 years are summarized in the final sentence of the chapter, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And 30 years later, the word of God came to John, beginning of chapter 3, and he went around proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just as prophesied by Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he invited all those who were laboring under their burden of sin. As back in Isaiah 64, we've been in our sins for a very long time. To come and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so we call John, John the Baptist. It's a baptism of repentance. And John, the forerunner, pointed to Christ. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And so in art, he is often so portrayed, pointing to Christ, whose way he prepared. John Prodramos, John the forerunner. But who would receive this message of God's visitation in Jesus? Who would come and find forgiveness for sins? Well, throughout his gospel, Luke repeatedly shows us that it is the most unlikely people, the last, the least, the lost. So, for example, in chapter 7, we have the story of the woman with the alabaster flask. And Jesus has gone into the house of Simon the Pharisee. He's been invited there. But Simon has shown him no hospitality. Instead, this sinful woman brings an expensive alabaster flask and shows Jesus tremendous loving care and hospitality. Pours the alabaster over his feet, washes his feet with her tears, dries it with her hair. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon who has shown him no hospitality, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he turned to the woman and said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you, Nancy, for this wonderful picture. 
And then in the next chapter, to the hemorrhaging woman, he said the same thing, though translated differently. She came and grabbed a hold of uh, the hem of Jesus' garment. I see some of you recognizing this picture here. Uh, Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's the same word. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. The Messiah is going to come to guide our footsteps into the way of peace. But most did not extend this hospitality to Jesus. And at the end of his long journey to Jerusalem, Jesus came over the Mount of Olives and he saw the city. And it's a dramatic sight even today. But Jesus wept over the city. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Your enemies will tear you down to the ground because you did not know the time of your visitation. The coming of Jesus was God's visiting, visitation to his people. As Jerusalem had rejected that. Jesus was handed over to the occupying power and he was put to death. And the disciples were devastated. The two on the Emmaus Road uh, on Resurrection Day, they didn't know that had happened, said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But it seemed they would have to go and look elsewhere. But on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came powerfully upon the disciples as they were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. And Peter challenged the crowd that was there um, in Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held up by it. So God vindicated his son vindicated his obedient servant, vindicated him over those who had scorned him. And then Peter said a most surprising thing, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So even those who are guilty of the most heinous sin, putting the Lord to death, to them is extended this offer to come and find forgiveness of sins. This baptism that John had first been performing, prefiguring the coming of Jesus, preparing the way, is now offered to all who will come and will turn to Jesus, confess their sins, and find forgiveness. Again, that's what the world really needs. Because the greatest enemies are the unseen ones of sin, of death, and ultimately of the demonic forces that are set against God and his Messiah. It's those rather than the physical enemies. And so the church began to grow. And the Jews. And then surprisingly, Gentiles began to come to faith. And this caused a problem. And a council was convened in Jerusalem. Uh, we read about in Acts 15. 
And at that council, James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, stood up and said, Simeon, that Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So God's visitation was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. And in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham that in his seed all the nations in the world will be blessed, God is now extending this forgiveness to all peoples and is building a people for his name, people for himself, drawn from Jews and Gentiles alike. And as we come and we find forgiveness for our sins, we also then learn to love our enemies and be able to forgive them and see them come into the kingdom as well. As God gathers in this earthly family in fulfillment of his promises to Abram, to David, and together we serve him as we were always destined to do. Now, per ancient tradition, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in the village of Ain Kerem, which is now in the western suburbs of Jerusalem. Uh, it's still a distinct village. And so last May, after all those of you who were on the Israel tour, we sent you home, and then Sue and I went there uh, to visit it. And first we went to the Church of the Visitation. And in the courtyard, along a lovely, alongside a lovely statue of Mary greeting Elizabeth, were plaques containing Mary's Magnificat in Greek, in Latin, in Hebrew, and in many, many other languages. Next, we went to the nearby Church of John the Baptist. And here, too, were plaques of the Benedictus in many, many languages. Um, call the uh, worship team to come up. Let's look at this. So Mary's Magnificat and Zechariah's Benedictus are very Jewish songs. They're full of the language and imagery of the Old Testament, which is now coming to fulfillment in the, God's people, in Israel. They're full of Israel's scriptures. But now they are sung all over the world in many, many different languages. Uh, and we sing them in English. God has visited his people. Jew and Gentile alike. He has liberated us so that we might serve him whose service is perfect freedom. So that we might serve him as we gather to sing his praises. And so that we might serve him in our daily lives. Living lives according to the pattern that he has set for humanity to live. He has liberated us so we might serve him whose service is perfect freedom. And so my soul magnifies the Lord. And blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And I want to close with another collect, another prayer. Lord God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the hearts that serve you, help us so to know you that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may fully serve you. Whom to serve is perfect freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then receive this benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, the participation in our lives of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the way of peace.